Because of the coronavirus epidemic and to respect social distancing guidelines, this episode of Civil Politics was recorded remotely over Zoom. Good evening, and welcome to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. We're coming at you uh, right at the beginning of September here. Labor Day is next Monday. Yes. (laughs) And we have a a special treat for you. Uh, We have, well, I'm Michael Dow. That was John Roberts, excited about the end of summer. Sue Timberlake's here with us, you know. Keeping an eye on us. <laughs> What's Labor Day? What's this stop? <laughs> it's a day. It's is day when we celebrate uh, uh, the glorious efforts of of proletariat labor's comrade. <laughs> Good to know. I guess right. you can oh tell I'm the Republican. Right. Oh Never mind. <laughs> and we are pleased to have as our special guest uh, the third candidate uh, running to be the Democratic nominee for the Hampshire County Sheriff, uh, Caitlin Cepeda. Uh, well, welcome, Ms. Cepeda. Thank you um, very much for having me. All right. Um, uh, well, two things. One, I want to mention uh, that uh, we do love to hear from our listeners. Uh, you can email us at uh, contact at civilpoliticsradio.com or at civilpoliticsfm on Twitter or facebook.com slash civilpoliticsradio, facebook.com slash civilpoliticsradio. Oh, no, sorry. Facebook. Yeah, sorry. Civilpoliticsradio.com is our website. So that's you know, a good place to go and find recordings of previous episodes of the show, including our interviews with uh, the previous two candidates whose names I'm now totally forgetting. <laughs> so that's fair. That was Patrick Kahilane and uh, Yvonne Gittleson. Right, exactly. But I, I couldn't remember uh, Ms. Cepeda's name last week, so it's only fair that I've forgotten the other guys this week. My God. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm <laughs> blonde. Anyway, um, yeah, so um, Ms. Cepeda, uh, uh, is a registered nurse and a certified correctional health care provider, which is a special extra certification. Uh, she's worked in cor- as a correctional nurse for the past 10 years, including until last October at the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office. Now you're with Berkshire County. You're a lifelong resident of uh, Hampshire County. And, uh, yeah, you're obviously familiar with and have a lot of useful experience with the uh, Hampshire County Sheriff's Office. Um, I do just want to mention, by the way, here at the top, and I'll mention it again at the end. um, Normally, when we do this show, we broadcast on Friday. We have a repeat broadcast on Monday afternoons. And uh, just after midnight on Monday, uh, genre puts this out to the various podcast feeds. Because we want to make sure that everybody who might be interested in hearing uh, all three candidates running for to be Hampshire County Sheriff, we're actually going to put this out Friday evening on the podcast services after we broadcast so that people who are uh, uh, streaming or not local or can't hear when we're live uh, will be able to listen to us then. So that's that's a break from our usual standard. But we want to make sure that uh, hey, part of the point of having all three candidates on is to give everybody a an equal voice. And, you know, we want to make sure that everybody actually has a chance to, to make up their own minds after hearing from all three of you. So, so um, uh, actually, if I can interject, if uh, our listeners, any, any listeners that are um, hearing us through podcasts, if you actually uh, prefer the podcast coming out earlier, please let us know. 
Uh, if you prefer listening to us through the weekend or something like that, if that's better for you, then I would love to know that. So because it's very easy to adjust our release schedule. Um, take it away, Mike. Ah, it's mine now. <laughs> Contact <laughs> at civilpoliticsradio.com. Yes, please. All right. So, um, uh, right. Well, Caitlin Sapita. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank I've... you for having me. Yes. <laughs> Welcome. Um, right. So I'm going to start with uh, the question I've, I, I asked the other our other challenger, Ms. Gittleson, a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, and a variation of what I asked Mr. K. Lane. Um, why should you be the Hampshire County Sheriff? And and connected to that, why have you decided to, uh, uh, you know, challenge the incumbent, a guy you worked for for a few years, presumably? For a number of years, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, like, like, why have you decided that now is a time to be throwing your hat in the ring? I think that's a good question that everybody should know the answer to. I think both Ms. Gittleson and I discussed how we couldn't sit back anymore and continue with the status quo. And that's certainly a large part of of my entering this race as well, that having been an employee there for nearly 10 years and seeing both this administration as well as serving under the previous administration, I thought that given my background and my experience, I could do a better job. And I had an interesting perspective to come at corrections from and thought that, you know, this was an appropriate time to step my foot into the ring here and um, really kind of get this campaign started. And I think the background I have in nursing lends itself to an interesting dynamic in corrections where for the last 10 years working in corrections, doing the face-to-face and the day-to-day work with the incarcerated population, I've seen the shift that's been happening in corrections away from what we maybe have been traditionally thinking about as the criminal coming into the incarceral setting into one that has shifted and really been taken over by the um, opioid epidemic and also mental health. In Hampshire County, we're talking about 80% of our population who have a diagnosed substance use issue and more than 50% of our population who have a diagnosed severe mental illness. Those are not law enforcement issues. Those are nursing issues. Those are things that I manage and deal with every day. That is the vast majority of our population. More than 50% of our population have a co-occurring disorder, meaning both of those things, substance use and mental health, are actively happening in them and need to be treated in an integrated fashion. That is mostly what we're dealing with. And then couple that with the fact that you're working in a jail and house of correction, which post-COVID and post-criminal justice reform, the sentences are shorter and shorter, and we're split largely 70% pretrial and 30% sentenced. That pretrial population has an average stay at the facility under 30 days. You are barely getting somebody to a baseline dealing with their substance use issue and stabilized with their mental health in that 30 days, barely. Good luck addressing anything else. What we are seeing more and more is people who we are just getting to the point where they are stabilized and willing to accept treatment at an outpatient facility. It is very difficult to address anything else in that short period of time. Yes, we do have people who are sentenced with us for longer. And yes, we do have people who are held pretrial longer with us. All the more reason to start them aggressively and early in their treatment programming. But for so much of what corrections is becoming, it is about harm reduction. 
with so much of our population walking in having particularly substance use issues and related to opiates, we ideally are just trying to get everybody to a point where they don't walk out the door and die. We ultimately want them to be able to walk out the door and be alive the next day in order to continue that path of treatment. These are nursing issues. These are things that I, as a correctional nurse and a patient advocate in the correctional system, are dealing with day to day. My goal in this race is to expand on that word patient from a singular person to now the entity of the sheriff's office and advocating now instead of a single individual, advocating for what my facility needs. And a lot of that has to do with substance use issues and mental health and the treatment and the um, fiscal responsibility and the fiscal management around those programs. So one of the things uh, when he was on with us, uh, uh, three weeks ago, uh, <clears throat> Sheriff Kaylane talked about was, you know, they said like, yeah, good stuff we've done is, you know, he talked about the focus on um, uh, treating people with, with opioids and uh, working to, to do more to help people uh, deal with the, their substance abuse uh, problems and mm -hmm. get treatment and, and get help going out of that. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I would presume that uh, as the uh, I think you said you were the only certified correctional health care provider who'd ever worked in the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office. Um, I've become uh, that since I left. I wasn't that when I was there. There wasn't any oh. advocacy. There wasn't any advocacy while I was there uh, focused on any member of the medical department attaining that certification. And when I left, there was certainly a push from my new employer that, yes, please, if that's what, you know, calls to you, we encourage you to do that. I didn't feel that same encouragement oh, nice. when I was in Hampshire County. Right, because the county, because as Ms. Gittleson talked about two weeks ago, every county sheriff is their own autonomous little fiefdom, and what the Berkshire County Sheriff decides they want to do doesn't yes. necessarily have any bearing on what any other sheriff wants to do. Correct. Okay, but you were, so I was sort of ramping up to you were instrumental, uh, I would imagine, in developing the uh, the the opioid treatment mm -hmm. systems and protocols mm -hmm. currently in place in the Hampshire Sheriff's Office. So, mm -hmm. could you talk a bit about? what you did and how they sure. work and so forth. Yeah. You know. a, num a number of years ago, starting back the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, when the facility started looking into providing medication-assisted treatment, I was on the ground floor of that. I was the medical liaison to the program for a number of years. Um, I helped in the initial design of the program, the initial directive writing, the initial grant writing. I designed the data capture system that we use to report all of our numbers and our successes to the Department of Public Health, as well as the Department of Corrections. So I did all of that. And just before I left in October last year, the facility became its own opioid treatment program, its own OTP, which I applaud highly. Only the second one in the state behind Franklin County. Um, the Hampshire counties is modeled off of, of Franklin counties, which is a very successful program. I applaud that. I think it could be made even better with some different ideas, some streamlining and some different innovations, but it's a very good program that I was a instrumental part of that I continue to applaud. Well, I good. think <laughs> I might have this wrong, but I, it hasn't been nationally recognized, the program that, in Hampshire County. That particular program? I, th uh, I thought so. Maybe I, I misread it, but I, I thought it had a national, there was some sort of a national recognition of it. Well, it's recognized by the well, it's recognized by the DEA as being, you know, a certified OTP, and they're working towards NCCHC certification 
for being an OTP as well. But um, no, I'm not aware of any specific accolades for just that program. I may have been mistaken, so I apologize. <laughs> Come on, Sue, making mistakes is my job. Stay in your it's, lane. <laughs> it's certainly it's certainly a progressive program. There are very, very few in the country um, correctional facilities that have their own OTP. And like I said, we're only the second in the state. It's certainly a very progressive program. We will likely see this nationwide at some point. Um, so Hampshire County is certainly on the forefront of that. And I was always proud to be part of the program. Cool. <clears throat> So, um, all right. So, uh, the increasing emphasis or the way that, um, how do I want to put this? So, um, the way that the, uh, job of a corrections facility in Massachusetts has, uh, really started to lean into being a medical treatment facility for people with substance abuse and mental health issues, which, says wonderfully terrible things about our society, uh, but let's let's leave the general issue aside. But that's that's not good. But um, since that's clearly where a lot of people who are uh, in serious distress and and need more help from uh, from the community uh, are are winding up getting that help, um, uh, and obviously, you know, you're. Uh, uh, correct, you know, sort of your certifications and and professional training make you a, a, a you know certainly suggest that you're an excellent choice to focus on that important part of the job. But like, uh, so what changes do you want to make? What specific policies do you want to pursue as Hampshire County Sheriff? You know, and especially like, you know, why do you feel that you know you need to be in that position as opposed to, you know, Mister Mister Kaylane who you know has. Was it, after all, overseeing the uh, current o opioid treatment plan, which, you know, you were part of and is is good? Um, there are other things happening at the facility that as a long term staff member there, I saw that I think need to be changed and that I have a different viewpoint on, particularly as a generationally different candidate. I'm. 20 plus years younger than the other candidates running in this race as well. So my platform is four pronged. The first of which is facility modernization. It is an antiquated facility running on 1970s technology. We actively use ink ribbon typewriters to keep daily logs. That's crazy to me what? in 2022. And in every single instance, those typewriters sit directly next to a computer with a software package on it that does and can do everything that we need it to do. There is simply the lack of initiative at the administrative level to say, we're going to get rid of the typewriters and we're going to use the technology in the 21st century. That hasn't happened. It hasn't happened in since 1977, you know, we've, we've been doing that. I think that's not fiscally responsible. I don't think it's efficient and I don't think it's a way to entice staff to come work for us or retain staff. It is very difficult when you are getting new staff in the door, which is difficult to do, period. We are in a staffing crisis. But when you get new staff in the door who are bright and young and coming out of some of the best criminal justice systems that we have in the state, and you bring them in and say, okay, you're going to keep your records on a typewriter. That's crazy. They've never seen a typewriter. They're 24 years old. We haven't used the typewriter seriously since the early 80s, like shortly after I was born. Like, it, it's not... 
it makes no sense in terms of staff retention, staff recruitment, fiscal responsibility, efficiency to the facility, best practice, none of that. That's the first part of my platform is facility modernization. The typewriter is just a singular issue. It's also about not having Wi-Fi in the facility. It's also about having a website that hasn't been touched in 10 years in terms of a content update, like the pictures in it aren't even from our facility. They're stock photos from the internet. Like, and the programs that it talks about don't even exist. Like, this is just simple things that we could be doing to update the facility that would also be of use to the community. Update that website so that the community has an access point in which they can reach the jail in order to offer their services for volunteer, outreach, community partnerships, entrepreneurial partnerships for work release programs, all of that. Use that website as a gateway for the families of incarcerated people. What exactly is going on? What are the programs? What are, you know, what does outreach look like? Who are the providers you're using that we can contact? All of that. The next part of it has to do with staffing. We need to change the way that we're recruiting staff and we're retaining staff. We're not doing that in the broadest way possible. All of corrections and law enforcement, and this is a nationwide issue, this isn't ex exclusively Hampshire County, this is everywhere, and corrections has certainly not been spared by the staffing crisis the law enforcement is seeing. We need to be starting to recruit in a different way. We have all of these very bright young people coming out of programs, you know, locally. How many, how many colleges do we have in the area? We need to be tapping into those resources in terms of the undergraduate as well as the graduate level. We need to start thinking about a different type of person that we're recruiting. You need somebody who has a hard work ethic, who is coachable, who is trainable. Why are we not more at um, veterans events? Mass hires has events almost monthly to you know job fairs, that type of thing. Hampshire County Sheriff's Office is not any of them. We should be actively involved in those type of things. And then it's also the retention of staff as well. You need Need to give staff something to work towards. The staff in the facility want to be doing good work and want to be helping and want to be giving back. But there is very little, if any, opportunity for lateral movement in the security side of their careers, very little in terms of upward mobility. And then when we start talking about all of the other departments, medical education and treatment, there is next to no mobility period. You will be doing the exact same job from day one till the day that you retire. I can't imagine anybody that wants to be doing that, especially on the security side, doing one through five well-being checks for the next 20 years. Nobody wants to be doing that. You have to give staff something else to be doing. So there need to be opportunities for lateral movement. So you need to have something like a recruitment team, field training officer position, things that we don't have, that we could have if we had just initiated it. And then it also has to do with treatment programming expansion. We need to start focusing more on high demand jobs versus the low demand jobs in the vocational and technical training aspects of the facility. We have a cane shop and a wood shop. We teach guys to cane chairs. I understand that that is something to occupy time and to give them a skill. I do not think that there is a high demand for that in our community, certainly not one that would offer a living wage and long-term job stability. We need to start thinking about jobs that are imminently available in our community that also offer a living wage, are Corey friendly upon release, because remember, that's always going to be a problem for people who have an incarceration history. And we need to start targeting in our training depart in our in our training and our vocational um, skills classes, jobs aimed at that 
think about the manufacturing and the building trades. There will be imminently more money for that in the coming years because of the influx of infrastructure money we've had with the American Recovery Act. We should be focusing on that, coupled with technology upgrades, start offering things like OSHA training, hoisting certification, and then pull something from my background, get everybody in the facility CPR and AED certified. We have trainers on site for that. That's no additional fiscal output. That's just a resource reallocation. That's just getting everybody to that. So if you can get an incarcerated individual certified in OSHA, CPR, first aid, and get their hoisting licensure, you can walk them out into any warehouse, any construction job, any building job, and get them a job on day one that pays a living wage, potentially has benefits, and offers them an opportunity and their foot in the door for advancement in a career that could be multidimensional for them and really offer them something to be proud of and to assist in the community as well. And then the fourth part of my platform is also this community engagement portion. I think coming from a nursing background, nursing is a career of service. I think service is very, very important for everyone. Largely, the community service aspect of the facility died during COVID. We shut that program down and it largely has not been reinstated in any kind of real way. We should be using service as a way to give back to our community and saying, thank you for supporting us. And this is what our individuals can give back to you and how we can be of service to this community. Talk about going to the small towns. A lot of the small towns, Hampshire County is 20 towns and count in cities. 10 of which are the hill towns and teeny, teeny, tiny. They need help up there, as do a lot of the other towns. But think about the small towns up there that have a whole lot of projects that need to get done. But maybe they only have one or two DPW workers to get it done, and they have a list of 100 things to do, and they're working for highest priority on down. Well, why aren't the individuals in our facility offering as community service to go into those towns and work on that same list, but from 100 up? Let's take the little projects, let's get them done. It's a big difference to the town in getting things done, but something that they don't necessarily have the resources to do every aspect of. Maybe you have the lawnmower or the bucket of paint, but you don't have the individual who has the time employed by your town to mow that town cemetery or to paint the bandstand or to do the repairs on the ball field dugout. We have guys who could be doing that. That's what our that's what our community service program should be. That shut down before COVID or right at the beginning of COVID and really hasn't reopened. I think service is such a big part of rehabilitation and of being a whole complete person that I think that really needs to be brought back into the facility. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Sure. Um, yeah. So the first thing is chair caning. Yeah. Yeah, That's like, a, am, am I explaining what that, like, so yeah, so the chairs that have like a mesh bottom or like a mesh kind of back to it, and it's done with cane uh-huh. and in patterned work. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the vote. That's the vocational programming we have right now. Huh. There, there are not a lot of people that do it. I will absolutely say that. I mean, yeah. But because but... of that, it's a low demand job. We're not going to be asking 15 guys this year to be released who have done our chair caning program and been <laughs> successful at it to go and find 15 jobs in the chair caning industry in <laughs> Hampshire County. It doesn't exist. But yeah. I but I can find you 15 jobs where we could have somebody drive a forklift yeah. or drive heavy machinery anywhere you yeah. have to start industry. i'm sorry <laughs> no, it's, not, 
it is funny and it's, it's also and it's not sad. Yeah. Like, exactly, it's, it's, it's both. Com- it's comical because it's a farce. like that's, that's what it is. Yes. Right, because it's, <laughs> yep. it's not anything that we can offer in terms of long-term job stability or real in-demand labor. I get that it's something that we can easily institute in the facility with the means that we have. I get that. But is that really ultimately helping all of the incarcerated population be their most successful self on re-entry into their community? I argue no. Crazy. Okay. But this is what I'm saying. This is like this is an antiquated round of thinking where I think a generationally different candidate like myself comes into this and goes, in the 21st century, this is crazy. Well, the right. the second thing I wanted to ask is, um, I know we only we only have a little bit of time left, but the second thing I wanted to ask is about going back to your to your uh, talking about like the community service uh, thing, like um, sending mm-hmm. people to uh, towns and helping to help out and everything like that. Is that are are you saying that's part of like their uh, community service? Um, uh, so. As individuals move through the correctional setting at Hampshire County, and yeah. as they become, once they're sentenced, and ultimately our, our goal is re-entry into the community, there are a number of steps till we get to that, like, you're on your own, by done with okay. your sentence kind of thing. Okay. One of those steps prior to COVID had been a stop in our minimum security building. The minimum security building started with everybody doing 30 days worth of community service. Community service at that time meant like stick and pick on the highways. We would set up tents at events. There was some uh, like mowing in town and that kind of thing. And then Mm -hmm. after that, we'd talk about moving those same individuals now into a job placement because now, you know, they've had time working and, you know, volunteering and all of that kind of thing. So let's move on to the next part where you actually have a job and an employer and a supervisor and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. That all shut down during covid so the service portion, as well, largely as the the work release, all shut down. So I think the reinstitution of a community service program for our sentenced population as they transition towards reentering the community is a very, very important part of their rehabilitation. So are you so when the, when they're with this community service um, mm-hmm. part of their rehabilitation is this like volunteer work? Or are they paid for it? Volunteer, just volunteer? like it would be for you. Yep, okay. just like it would be for you. If you were cleaning up trash on Earth Day, or if you were volunteering in your community because you had a particular skill that you'd like to help out with. Mm-hmm. We have volunteers who come into the facility or did before COVID, um, had volunteers who came into the facility um, and just offered their services as decisional trainers, or they did a project with our minimum security building because they had the skill and the time and it was a program that we could accommodate. We had all of that. So we had community members do that as well. I think it should work reciprocally reciprocally as well that our individuals should go out and do service now they're all minimum security individuals they are all accompanied by a staff member they are all supervised we're not just sending them out there for eight hours and they're gonna like hope that they come back at the end of the day (laughs) it's more than that so they will be supervised but it is for them to be of service so many recovery programs AANA, things like that, all have a service component to them because we know, like statistically speaking, being of service to others does positive things for one's self-worth and one's self-esteem. 
And a lot of what these guys are struggling with are issues with self-worth and self-esteem and feeling less than human. Of course. Corrections is a dehumanizing experience from the get-go. That's what part of what the institution is, unfortunately. And part of what our job as correctional professionals and what my job hopefully would be as an administrator is to mitigate that dehumanizing experience as much as possible and to rebuild one's self-worth at every opportunity I can. And I think community service and service to others is a good way to do that. This is uh, this is an excellent. Uh, uh, sorry, you made a really good point, and that's that's excellent. And I think we should talk about this some more. But we are at the halfway point, so we're going to take a quick break here, uh, play some PSAs, promos, and station IDs, and civil politics. We'll be back with more of our discussion with uh, Hampshire County uh, uh, Sheriff's Office candidate uh, Caitlin Sapita. Uh, here on uh, Civil Politics on Valley Free Radio. Please don't go away. We'll be right back. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. And we're back with Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm still Michael Dow. I'm still doing the show with uh, Genre and Sue. And our guest tonight is Caitlin Sapita, who is running to be the Democratic nominee to be the sheriff of Hampshire County. And uh, the primary is coming up next Tuesday, the 6th, the day after uh, Labor Day. Uh, so, you know... Uh, if you haven't already uh, marked your ballots, you know, pay attention closely and then uh, please do vote, um, especially because uh, the Democratic primary, there is no Republican candidate and no one's staging a write in campaign. So uh, pretty much the Democratic nominee is going to wind up being the actual can the actual sheriff. So uh, please do uh, uh, take take part in this election if you can, because, uh, you know, the stakes are stakes are significant. Um, one of the things that it's become clear to me uh, ha after, you know, halfway through this interview and after interviewing the other two candidates is there's a lot that the sheriff's office does. And given that uh, the sheriffs have a, a lot of autonomy as elected officials with six year terms, it really behooves us to pay more attention to this office and really think carefully about who we're going to vote for. So. So with that, uh, I wanted to just. Uh, uh, you were talking about community service and also Sue had some questions about um, uh, uh, 
the incarceration of, of women in Hampshire County versus men. But I just wanted to, before uh, we move on to uh, Sue's point, um, uh, just you talked about voluntary community service. And I'm just like, is it really voluntary or is it like, well, you're if you want to, you know, as part of your the way we're releasing you, you don't have to do 30 days of community service. It's not it's mandatory, isn't it? No, nothing's mandatory. They can refuse anything that they choose. It just increases the level of supervision and security with which they would be then supervised with. So they would move out of that building and back into a higher level of security if they don't want to participate. I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. They're not required or forced to do anything in jail. There are choices aplenty. There are consequences for all of those choices, the same as there would be for you or I. We make a choice, and sometimes the consequences are positive, sometimes they're negative. It's the same thing, but the choice so, is theirs. So there are carrots and sticks to get them to th- encouraging people to do community service. Sure, well, the community good, service is bad. And I'm not. That's trying what good to, time is for. Right. Well, I'm not. I'm not trying to, to mm-hmm. you know crap on the idea, but I'm just like I just wanted to be clear. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I in the t- in the nearly ten years that I worked there, I don't recall anybody ever refusing a community service detail. It's an yeah. opportunity to get out of the building. It is an opportunity to do something different where in a place where every day is Groundhog Day, different yeah. is a different is a good thing. And once these guys have gotten to that stage of their recovery and that stage of their reentry process, they are all very much looking to give back. Hmm. They're okay. all very much. I've never seen anybody refuse a community service detail like that. No, it's generally a pretty positive thing. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the things that I I worry about is, uh, especially well, with regard to you know the way our prison system works, is the exploitation of prison labor. Mm-hmm. So I think you know what you're talking about seems somewhat different from the issue of people you know having jobs and then getting paid like eight cents an hour kind of thing, and it's basically you know like a way to have super cheap labor and you know, feeds the quote unquote prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about sounds like yeah, actual, is, actual yeah, community, community service, which yeah, is a this different is service yeah. to the community. And I think even this is a different version of what we saw pre COVID where a lot of it was, you know, stick and pick on the highway kind of thing. We're just picking up trash along the way. I think it could be more community targeted, like I was saying, yeah. you go to some of these small towns that need their public cemetery mowed. They need their bandstand painted. They need some repairs done at some, you know, exterior recreational buildings, something like that, where it's yeah. an opportunity for service, but it's also an opportunity for the individuals doing the service. You know, they get to work with other people. They meet new people. It's potentially a character reference. It's potentially a networking opportunity, especially if we're doing service in the community that you might be released back into, you you know, that's all really good things. Teaching these guys how to work underneath somebody, take supervision, take direction, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I think they're all valuable life skills. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not trying to, to knock all that. No, I'm, no, I know I'm, you're not. Yeah. I'm just, I, well, yeah. a bit, I mean, I could be, but I'm also aware that like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally, you know, a, you know, country club liberal you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know it's like oh, i understand character building for them to go out and do community mm-hmm. service and it's like mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i just i try to be aware that of, of not being that guy if possible mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so mm-hmm. up, mike you were thinking cool hand luke with paul newman 
I know you were. <laughs> I, you know, I'm gonna be honest. I've never actually seen that movie, and I should because I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Paul Newman, and he actually went to my college, and so you know, like I feel like a certain connection to him. But no, I've never actually well, seen Cool Hand Luke. Make some good money. It was a chain. Chain gang, yeah, yeah it was a ch ch chain gang. Uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, um, that's that's exactly the kind of thing that we absolutely need to get rid of mm -hmm. in this country. But, but that's not what we're talking right. about here. And I just I wanted to make clear that there 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 is a distinction here. Anyway, sorry, Sue, you wanted to ask us some clever questions too. So please go ahead. Well, I'm I'm actually embarrassed to say that I have three stools in my house that my aunt and uncle gave me one Christmas, and my uncle was a correctional guard in uh, up in Maine and the woodworking shop up there made some beautiful stuff and they they paid for the stools but I think the the inmates at one of the main facilities made them the beautiful stools but anyway so now I'm embarrassed that I that I have them so took advantage probably of of you know somebody who was incarcerated um the yeah, real question I was going to ask really well probably <laughs> they don't have canes I don't think you really stuck a stool. on this <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people are. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, it's wonderfully shocking. emblematic of the kind of problems that you exactly. – and, and also <laughs> Ms. Gittleson talked about some. Yeah. Like she mentioned yeah, the typewriters I, but not the caning. It's like chair caning. Yeah. Yeah. It's both, yeah. Right. Chair ca caning would be a very different and much bigger problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Fortunately. Um, I'm sorry. So go ahead. Well, and, and sort of when you just referenced it, you said that the guys, you know, they'll go out into the community and they'll make contacts and networks and learn how to be supervised and, you know, per, perhaps network for a job. Um, there are women that go to jail in Hampshire County, too, but they don't they don't go to jail here. And we were talking about it a little bit during the break. And um, you explained why um, that wouldn't necessarily be easy to do here in in Northampton. Mm -hmm. because of the requirements and yeah I, so I, you know mm -hmm. so all of the women go to the western massachusetts women's correctional facility in chicopee that's run by hamden county that started uh we moved all the women from hampshire county over there at the very end of 2011 beginning of 2012 they moved like just before i started working um so it was designed to be a regional women's facility so everything worcester west is where that's where all of the female incarcerated individuals go um and from berkshire county as well yes sir okay yep they all Keep go going. there sorry i just i just wanted to understand yeah yeah, so that's a little hard on the families. I mean, that's pretty far away for well, pre-release folks. I'm, I'm not running for sheriff of Berkshire County or Worcester County. I'm running for sheriff of Hampshire County. Um, yeah. It is some difficulty, yes, uh, from some places in Hampshire County to Chicopee. It is very few individuals, and it was designed to be a facility specific to women's needs, specific to women's health care, specific to women's treatment um, needs to mental health needs specific to women to programming and family treatment specific to women and when Hampshire County is talking about annually a handful of women that would be staying like for significant periods of time um, in that type of facility 
with the legal requirements about keeping men and women's sight and sound different and also offering parity in terms of treatment, vocational options, work options while incarcerated, in a facility like Hampshire County designed the way that it is. Remember, Hampshire County was built in 1984. It is an antiquated facility designed in a way that we do not operate corrections now it would be incredibly difficult to meet all of those requirements in the physical building that we have right now. It would also increase our budget substantially. I'll speak to this just as a nurse, thinking about the healthcare needs of managing women's healthcare soup to nuts, including pregnancy, childbirth, aftercare, all that type of thing. If we're talking about being fiscally responsible and you want to add those services into a facility like Hampshire County, that is a significant increase in your budget that you're looking for. As, you a, saying- as, an, as, an, as an administrator, like a sheriff, my primary responsibility is to the incarcerated individual. If you ask the women who are incarcerated at that facility, whether they would prefer to come back to Hampshire County and receive potentially less services or less ER services, I would be hard pressed to think that they would want that. The women's facility just received a national um, recognition um, as a top-notch kind of women's treatment facility just recently from the ACA. Um, And their programming is really quite stellar there. And if you talk to women who have come out of that program, the treatment is very, very specific, very well-rounded and good. Um, And yes, I understand that there are issues with accommodating families and um, strain on families in terms of visits and things like that. Yes, Um, probably less so since covid has happened and most places have stopped contact visits entirely and has expanded the use of Zoom anyway. And Zoom has been really successful in prison systems and in incarcerated systems in general. I don't really see- And radio shows too. (laughs) Sure. Um, And I don't see any of the sheriffs removing or moving away from Zoom, even if and when in-person visits do resume. Zoom has been really successful and has addressed some of the problems that you're talking about, Sue, in terms of transportation issues or cost issues on families, that families can still keep connected. We know that recidivism is reduced when we implement programs that allow incarcerated individuals to remain and keep contact with their families and communities. And Zoom has been really successful in doing that and has bridged some of the gaps that existed in a kind of system like that where you're talking about where we regionalize women's treatment. And I think that it's been pretty successful in dealing with a lot of the issues. Um, And I think having the female focus where we can offer in one singular place every type of treatment and it is very, very targeted treatment. Treatment needs, mental health needs, Medical needs for women and men are often very different, and it is important to have those services available in their absolute best and most robust form for the women of Hampshire County. And, kind of, and you were saying about 10 or 12, 10, 10 or 12 women 
at, at a high point at any time at, from Hampshire at County? At any time they're coming out of Hampshire County, at any one point are incarcerated there. It'll be more over the course of the year, but at any singular yeah. point, we're not, I mean, the, the men's facility at Hampshire County is 128 individuals right now. We're talking largely at any given time, much, much less than that. And we don't at Hampshire County have an area of the facility where we could be housing 20 or 30 women separate sight and sound from our men at the same time offering them all of the treatment options and programming that they would need separate from because they can't be intermingled they can't work with they can't go to programs with they can't see hear anything that's a legal requirement that is incredibly oh, difficult that's incredibly difficult to do in a facility designed like Hampshire County when women were housed there they were housed in the basement in these tiny tiny little housing areas that we have and they weren't afforded um, like work opportunities like our guys now, like they work in the kitchen and their hallway cleaners and things like that. Now it was like this little sub area unto themselves and they were just like in the basement. I don't know that that's where, like as an incarcerated woman, like I don't know if that's how I'd want to be spending my time. So how Very does- interesting, but they were there till 2011 though. Yeah. And that's when they, the laws yep. changed and they- they made the and they, facility well, when the facility was designed. And, but again, let's start thinking about cost too. That passed through the legislature because all of the sheriff's offices decided that that would be a better use of resources in order to regionalize those services for women. That was a $52 million building that got built. Even though the moratorium on prison building didn't get signed by Governor Baker, we're not going to be spending that money right now there's not going to be an influx of many millions of dollars to Hampshire County right now for us to build a separate women's wing. That's not happening. Corrections is moving more out into the community, more into um, diversion programs prior to the carceral setting. No one's going to give us $12 million to build this separate modern wing. And so uh, the, the, you, t- you know, what you're making some sensible financial arguments. Um, how much money actually comes out of like the Hampshire Sheriff's Office budget and gets sent down to Chicopee to Hampton Hamden County to run the facility in Chicopee? Or is that just like a separate line item? Like the the, the Hamden County Sheriff just has that in their budget and mm-hmm. it's a separate line item that goes towards the running of that facility. Okay. So so the Hampshire the Sheriff's state. Office budget doesn't look at that consideration at all. It's just like it's for whatever's happening in Hampshire County and there's no money like, right, for the 10 women on average at any given time from Hampshire County who will be there. We're going to say Hampshire County gets, I don't know, X dollars and then those X dollars immediately go down. I, I just don't know how it works. No, it doesn't work quite like that. No, they're they're remanded to there. So they become the custody of that facility then. Yes, they're from our county, but they are in the custody of another county that deals with all of their issues. And so it's up. So the money, the money goes towards Hamden County. That's why Hamden County's budget is so big. Um, Hamden County is the second largest budget outside of Suffolk County for a correctional facility in the state. And that's because they have so many different divisions that they have the main facility and the women's facility and the Stony Brook and all of the other pieces that they have that they're managing. And so and again, because the county sheriffs are each their own sort of separate domains that so that all the women in that regional facility are ultimately uh beholden to the policies and administrative decisions of the hampshire county of the hamden county Hamden sheriff's office yes 
for for good or for ill? I think for good. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it sounds like they're if if they've got a a, a nationally lauded program for uh, women substance abuse. I mean, clearly they're not doing everything wrong. But I just, you know, I don't know because. I don't actually have a vote in Hamden County, and I don't really know what's going on down there. So even if I didn't like what I saw, I wouldn't be mm-hmm. able to do anything about it. And, you know, I just think that's kind of noteworthy. Sure. But also where some networking comes in. Like, I know people that work in Hamden County. I know nurses that work in Hamden County. I know officers that work in Hamden County. So I have a little bit of an insider perspective there, and I know that they do good work there. And, and at the moment, um, whereas – ideally people would be you know incarcerated closer to their homes mm-hmm. um just the, the money isn't there to 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 change things around so this is the the status quo works well enough that you don't you don't think we should change it my opinion is that this is the best option for incarcerated women in for in Hampshire County's incarcerated population that are female. Okay. Yes. I think this is the best option for them. Cause again, we need to be thinking about the individual and sure. I understand that for the individual, the location and family access and things like that are incredibly important, but ultimately we need to get that person better. Sure. Sure. But, and, and, Making a change, make, making a kind of change where things would actually be equally good as they are right now at that is regional just not facility gonna be, is not going to be fiscally possible right now. Nope. Right. I just wanted to be not clear on that. Happen. OK. All right. Yeah, so that's not even anything that's in anybody's like that's not even a magic genie wish. OK. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> um, so I actually also I wanted to ask you about. um so you talked about women's health care and, you know, men's health care and how they're different and how the women go to that, that facility. Um, what uh, accommodations uh, does Hampshire County currently make or would you like to, changes would you like to see to dealing with uh, inmates who are uh, uh, trans or, uh, uh, you know, non, non-binary, intersex and so forth? That's obviously potentially a serious healthcare issue as well. It is, sure. And we've dealt with a number of um, transgender individuals over the years that I've been associated with, and we take very closely into consideration their wishes. They are, like every other patient, a very active participant in their healthcare and what um, they feel most comfortable with in terms of their housing situation and how they would like to be treated. We do hormone therapy. Um, We continue all of the work that they have been doing prior to incarceration on the outside, we continue that all inside in terms of their mental health, their endocrinology appointments, all of that. It all gets managed in the exact same way that it does on the outside. And I think this is a misnomer across the country for people who don't know much about the incarcerated setting and particularly about healthcare in incarcerated settings. 1976 Supreme Court case Estelle v. Gamble um, determined that the incarcerated population were required to receive comparable treatment to the everyday person while incarcerated. Prior to that, there was a secondary level of care, that care inside of facilities was less than that case um, changed things such that everything had to become equal now. So I think the misnomer is that they need something and they don't get it. That's not how it all works. If they need something, they get everything that they need. Whatever services they were getting on the outside, they get continued on the outside. That's the same for transgender individuals as it is for everybody else. Continued on the inside. Yes. 
Right. Yeah, they'll continue their hormone treatment. They'll continue their therapies. They'll continue to see whatever providers that they were seeing and we'll consult with all of them. Right. Healthcare providers inside of correctional facilities are generalists. We're not specialists for anything. We certainly, if you have a specialized issue, you're going to go out and see somebody for that. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, we're jack of all trades, master of none inside the facility. If you have a specialized issue and you need to see a specialist for it, whether that's your endocrinology services because you're transgender or that's you need to see a gastroenterologist because you have hepatitis, you go out and see a specialist. Hmm. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, uh, sorry, Sue, did you have a question? Well, I have a million questions. Where where would you like to go? I want to talk a little bit about what was in the press over the last few days. We didn't sure. talk to the other candidates about it because mm-hmm. it hadn't hit the press yet. But I don't, mm-hmm. you know, what was in the Gazette seems to allege that somebody from the sheriff's staff with a company car um, went and took pictures of another staff member. Yes, And I wondered what your thoughts were on that, you know, not getting us into any slander or liability, but mm-hmm. just what you what what happened, if you know, or what, I, I what, think the fact that that hit the press and then 48 hours later, that individual resigned tells you everything you need to know. Hmm. And that was a well, long time employee, right? Uh, somebody yeah. who's yes. been there for a long, long time. time employee, number two of the facility. She oversaw the day to day operations and oversaw all the staff. That was the position that the sheriff held prior to his election. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, I, I get the impression will, will from there that. Be, Go ahead. Sorry, Sue. I, I was going to say, so do you think there'll be reorganization around that? Or if, you, if you're if you elected, would there be reorganization of, you know, sort of jobs and roles or? I'm sorry, Sue. Could you repeat that, please? Sure. Sorry. So um, if if elected sheriff, you know, given that there's a hole now in the number two position there, would you, I imagine that you have lots of plans for reorganization or how to reconstruct? There would be significant reorganization in the executive administration if I took office. Yes. There would be significant reorganization and not just to fill that hole, but I think that there are some positions in place that are redundant. I think that there are some positions in place that are not particularly useful the way that they're designed. And I think that there needs to be staff reallocations and responsibility allocations. Yeah. And I heard you say earlier, you know, giving some upward mobility for people and some ability to move laterally and Mm -hmm. get other training. Mm-hmm. Sort of more of a enhanced human resource environment. Mm-hmm. There just needs to be opportunities for people. And it's just about giving people something to own and th- something to specialize in and feel like they have something that they're responsible for and can feel pride in doing every day. Like, this is my job. I'm going to do it really, really well. Like, this is my niche. And I'm going to just run with that. That doesn't exist. Like, we need something else. And we need to show younger staff that that type of mobility exists so that we can retain them. We are bleeding staff. Not only are we not able to hire and train and recruit people, but we are bleeding our senior staff. So we are taking that experience and that dedication and all of that, um, you know, training opportunity, education experience, all of it, and it's going elsewhere. Well, uh, on that note, I think we're going to clap it because I, I, I hear the music. <laughs> so, um Yeah, that's certainly a compelling case for change at the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office, and 
Uh, Caitlin Cepeda is uh, the woman we've been talking to. She's a registered oh, nurse. Hold on. Hold on a second. Okay. Voting. Yeah. Your views on, on voting in jail. I was wondering if you were going to ask that question because you asked it to everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, okay. I'm, it was the I'm, one question that you wanted to have everybody answer. Well, I was, I was, I was paying attention to so many different things. So, uh, <laughs> voting in jail. Your thoughts? Uh, I am incredibly in favor of the Votes Act and the fact that this makes um, voting requirements in incarcerated situations a proactive requirement of the administrators. It is no longer good enough just to have the absentee ballots out there or to post a, you know, a a flyer that says, hey, voting is this day. It needs to be it needs to be more than that. It's now required to be more than that as well. It should, because unfortunately, people in incarcerated situations do not take voting seriously, don't think that the political and voting process works for them or speaks to them or is something that they need or can be part of. I think, unfortunately, there is a lot of voter disenfranchisement of incarcerated people, but that's de facto, not actual. Yeah. Almost everybody who is in jail can actually vote. They just don't think they can or they don't know that they can. So I think one of the first things that needs to happen is when individuals come through the door of Hampshire County, generally the next day or two days or so after, they do an intake program with a case manager. I think at that first contact, there needs to be a discussion about, are you registered to vote? If not, do you want to be registered to vote? Let's get you registered to vote. And if you think you're registered to vote, let's try to figure out where you are registered to vote so that we know come voting, like where we need to send all of your stuff and do all of that. So it needs to start there. Most of these guys have no idea if they're even registered to vote. If they are, where at? And if they're not, how can they be? It's not that hard. Like you can go on the secretary of the Commonwealth's office and type in your name and where you think you're, you know, Yep. registered to vote and it'll tell you whether you are it's not hard it's just we don't we use typewriters we don't have the technology that we're like <laughs> implementing to do this you know so it's it starts simple there and then it's also like being more proactive about it so offering informational sessions um offering right now what happens is the paralegal for the facility goes and does all of this it could be more we need to be having debates forums candidates visiting talking about the issues all of those things need to proactively be happening and should be happening. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and that's got a fine place to put a button on this episode because uh, we're out of time. Yeah, uh, I, but, I, now I remember. I, that's all I, I remember. It's fine. You can go yeah. ahead now. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to edit this down anyway. So, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, thank you for joining us, Caitlin Cepeda, registered nurse and uh correction uh, uh uh running to be the uh yeah, sorry thank you for joining us caitlin cepeda uh registered nurse and candidate to be the democratic nominee to be for hampshire county sheriff uh the primary uh for the election for that is coming up next tuesday september uh 6th day after labor day uh and since there's nobody else uh, on the ballot except for the democrats uh whoever we pick on the sixth is going to wind up being the sheriff so it's really important to go out and, and, and vote. Uh, you can listen to this interview. Um, you go to uh, civilpoliticsradio.com uh, on Friday after this episode is aired. Uh, you'll be able to listen to it then, or it'll be out on the various podcasting services. It's a little earlier than we normally do it. Uh, let us know at uh, contact at civilpoliticsradio.com if you like that. Um, yeah, and thank you very much for joining us, Ms. Cepeda. It's been a thank real you. pleasure having you on. Um, 
So, uh, that'll do it for Civil Politics tonight here on Valley Free Radio. Coming up next is Subculture, uh, followed by Table of Contents at 10 and OK Asia at midnight. And uh, we'll have a repeat broadcast on Monday afternoon. So, thanks for, li- thanks for listening. Good night. Civil Politics is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.